Hello and welcome to the Health and Wellness Show. Today is November 30th, 2018. Joining me in our virtual studio is Tiffany, Doug, and Elliot. Hello. 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 Welcome to the show. All. And who are you? <laughs> My name is Erica. <laughs> welcome. And Erica. today on our show, we're going to talk about chronic pain. Is it all in your head? So for many of you, you may suffer from low back pain, achy joints, persistent pins and needles or feeling of neuropathy, or maybe you have fibromyalgia and hurt all over. If you do, you're one of 39 million Americans who suffer persistent pain. And I'm sorry, I don't have the stats outside of the U.S. on pain <laughs> sufferers. Maybe you gentlemen can add that in in the show today. <laughs> Only the Americans that come up here. <laughs> Being on the pain train is bad enough without the added insult of being told it's all in your head. But what if it is, at least partly? So there's some types of pain that are obviously linked to actual physical insult and other types that cannot be traced to an easily identifiable medical condition. Research, research is now showing that some pain really is in the brain. And so... I guess I'll just kind of start off. I, I was fascinated by this topic because, you know, working and reading on SOT, you read about pain a lot and what people do and how to alleviate it. And, of course, we know about pharma drugs and modalities. And so we're going to attempt to cover the pain topic today. But one thing that's interesting about pain is that you can't survive without it, right? It's a natural biological process. It's critical mm. for your life. And it protects our body from injury and reminds us that tissue is damaged. And um, it also aids in repairing itself. So I think a good place to start is what chronic pain is. And uh, you all might want to add to this, but it seems like the research says... If you're in pain for longer than six months, especially after an injury, say you had a surgery or broke a limb, uh, if you're not recovered after four to six months, then you are a chronic pain sufferer. And um, there's That's different. A long time. Yeah. I don't yeah. think I could deal with the four to six months of being in pain, even though my wow. thumb has been hurting for a long time, but it's not. Maybe that you bad. got the gout. <laughs> thumb. <laughs> But the thing is, is, and I'm just going to disclose this, I have not been a chronic pain sufferer. So Me I do neither. feel for people that experience that because it sounds like it's ongoing. And for a lot of people, it's ongoing for years. Mm -hmm. And it seems yeah. like it really depletes your ability to sleep, which I think has a huge role to play in chronic pain and causes a lot of anxiety. Yeah, I think it just saps the life out of you, you know? Mm -hmm. If you constantly have, like, you know, I've had issues where I've been in pain. You know, I've thrown out my back before and I've, you know, had other, you know, broken a toe before and stuff like that. And although those might not even compare to somebody who has some kind of debilitating condition. But, I mean, that's bad enough, you mm -hmm. know? So I can imagine somebody going around with a chronic pain condition they don't necessarily know what's causing it. They're just always in pain like that. It just sucks the life right out of you. Yeah, I can't imagine yeah. what that would be like. I've never suffered from chronic pain either myself. 
Um, I work with quite a few people who do suffer from chronic pain and to hear their experiences, um, it's very difficult to, to kind of understand, I think, when, when you haven't experienced that. Um, and from what I understand from hearing people's experiences, recounting their, um, the, the way that they've sort of dealt with that, it's kind of, from, from what I can make out, it seems as though um, they, they, they have to come up with strategies, um, not so much to relieve the pain, but to, um, I guess, get used to it. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> um, find a way to cope. And, yeah, find a way to cope. Um, and it can be quite, it's, it's very hard for me to conceptualize what that must be like, um, to be in a constant state where it hurts um, and not really being able to do anything about it. And especially when people take painkillers, they take opiates and all of these things and they don't work. Um, mm. It must be a very difficult thing to go through. Um, and some people go through this for like 20, 30 years. Mm. Yeah. Well, and it seems like, and again, I apologize, it's just American statistics, but uh, that pain affects more people than diabetes, heart disease, and cancer combined. And the number one uh, most common pain is low back pain. So 27% yeah. of Americans. And then it's headache and migraine pain, and then neck pain and facial pain. So if you're hurting all over constantly, I just, I get, like you said, I can't imagine what that's like. And and from the research that we did for this show, it shows that, like you were saying, Elliot, the opioids and the, what do they call them, NSAIDs? NSAIDs. Yeah. Non-steroidal um, anti-inflammatory. Yeah, that they may help a little bit if you've got that you know, surgery or broken limb or something, but for the brain pain, not at all. Mm. That's the thing. Pain is so entirely subjective. I mean, there are people who are very empathic and say that they can feel other people's physical pain, but let's say that's an extreme rarity. Mm. And you ask people about their pain, like in hospitals or doctor's offices, like rate your pain on a scale of zero to 10, and 10 is the worst pain you've ever felt in your life. And there are people who are going around every day with pain like six and above, and that is just horrible. But I don't know. It's You feel for them, but at the same time, a little part of you is saying, oh, I'm so glad that that is not me because I can't imagine yeah. living like that. And they yeah. have to go to work. They have to take care of their families. They have to keep you know, living their lives, and they're in this incredible amount of pain. But I had some um, thoughts about, like, why is low back pain so prevalent? Because a lot of people, like, they didn't actually injure their backs. Like, some people, they had an actual injury or something. But some people, it just creeps up on them slowly, and they get these degenerative changes in their spine, or not, as we'll talk about. Um, but... Why low back pain, I wonder? And then I was thinking about gut health. And if your gut is messed up due to a poor diet, 
maybe the pain in your gut radiates out to your lower back because it's right next to your gut. Maybe that is a reason why so many people suffer with low back pain. That's just one of my stupid thoughts. <laughs> That's not a stupid too. thought. <laughs> no, they say I that remember. about kidneys as well. Like apparently mm -hmm. people who are suffering from kidney problems can sometimes, uh, it manifests as lower back pain. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll go out on a limb here and say the psychological aspect to uh, Louise Hay, who wrote You Can Heal Your Life, about your thoughts, mental state, financial stress, mm -hmm. low back pain, burden of the reality of the world we live in financially, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, that would make sense. But our title well, for the show. Yeah. Chronic pain, is it all in your head? Some people might find that kind of insulting. The yes. idea, because when you say, you know, especially people who have been suffering and have actually been, you know, told that by practitioners and doctors and things like that, they'll say, um, oh, yeah, I think it's actually, you know, we've, we've done all the tests and there's nothing wrong with you. So um, I think this is all in your head. I think this is a psychological issue and they want to prescribe like antidepressants or you know, some kind of uh, psychotropic medication for it. Um, so I think maybe we should explain um, this a bit. Well, I have a little um, bit of kind of notes on that. So apparently there's three uh, dimensions of pain. So there's the sensory discriminative, and that's like uh, the actual detection location intensity of the pain. So it's the direct nerve pathway from the body to the spinal cord up into the brain's cortex. So like you were saying, if you stub your toe or, you know, break a bone, I would imagine that's sensory descriptive, right? Correct me if I'm wrong. No, I think so. And, and then effective emotional pain. So that's the circuitry interacting with the limbic system. So emotional centers of the brain and that kind of speaks to the idea of, you know, uh, like Tiffany was saying, well, I feel your pain. Well, when you are rejected by your peers, it can be the same kind of pain as cutting your finger or something. Mm -hmm. And then the cognitive evaluative, so conscious interpretation of the pain signal, pain processing, uh, allows us to determine the location and potential severity. Um, and then how you deal with that. Yeah. Well, some people can deal with it better than other people. There's always been this myth that uh, men are crybabies and they can't take pain because they've never given childbirth. They don't know what real pain is. <laughs> but apparently it comes down to the individual. I mean, there's been uh, articles written that women experience pain worse than men too. But on an individual level... Uh, there was some research done like people who are more resilient and are, I guess, stronger mentally can deal with pain better than people who have, I don't want to use the word crybaby, but. <laughs> well, more sensitive. Are, yeah, a little bit more sensitive, not just when it comes to pain, but in different areas of their lives. There are people who are like really strong, not just physically, but mentally and you know take care of things that need to be done and people kind of let things go and depending on your personality type you can deal with pain better 
Well, you can kind well, of see that. In, yeah. Oh, go on. We're going to say. Well, I was just going to say that there, there apparently is a genetic component to that as well. They've been doing some research on a particular gene, and it was interesting because they found it. They discovered it when they were studying people who had a condition where they don't feel pain, and the name of the condition is escaping me at the moment. But um, it's basically just that they don't feel pain. So as good as that actually sounds, <laughs> it actually is quite detrimental because like you were saying at the top of the show, Erica, like we actually need pain in order to survive. You know, um, you can think about somebody who like cuts themselves open or something like that and doesn't notice because they don't actually feel the pain from it. They could technically like bleed out or mm -hmm. if, you know, they're having uh, appendicitis or something like an appendicitis attack and they don't feel any pain from it. So it's like that could rupture and cause all kinds of problems. So they were studying these people who had um, the this condition, and they found a, a difference in, in the genetic makeup of them and other people who were normal and would feel pain. Um, and they discovered this gene, and apparently there's different variations on that gene that will affect how you feel pain. And there is a small portion of the population that actually will experience pain more severely than others. Um, like to a, to a strong degree. So it's like every little pain for them is like, like horrible, which would be an absolutely terrible condition to be in. And then there's mm -hmm. other people who don't feel it as much, even though they do feel it. Um, they don't, uh, it, it doesn't affect them nearly as much as it does other people. Well, that's gotta be kind of weird living with chronic pain, because if pain is like one of our survival signals that tell us, you know, stop doing what you're doing or, something really bad is going to happen to you. Just imagine having that on all, all the, the time. time. It's like you're constantly in fight or flight mode, but you can't get away from it. Yeah. I think inflammation has a lot to do with it. I mean, we're not going to beat the diet topic to death again, <laughs> but I think diet can have a lot to do with it too. Mm -hmm. And when you're depressed and tired and irritable and somebody offers you chocolate cake and <sighs> makes you feel better and then it contributes to it and it is like a slow wearing down mm -hmm. well do we want to play a clip mm -hmm. this is from dr claw okay <laughs> it's not spelled like regular claws why i had a Kind of a senior moment there. I couldn't think of how to say his name. And apparently he's the leader in chronic pain research around the world. Yeah, I think he's out of Michigan State University. He's a, seems like a completely mainstream type of doctor, but he has some interesting things to say about chronic pain. In this clip, he's going to explain how chronic pain or even non-chronic pain can be both due to a physical insult and have a lot of um, components as far as uh, the central nervous system and the brain. Scientific talks. Um, and this is an analogy that I came up with about six or seven years ago that, that seems to be helpful in allowing people to understand what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the role the brain has in, in sort of controlling the volume control or the setting of pain. And the analogy that I'm going to use now is that the amount of pain that a person is experiencing is akin or analogous to the loudness of an electric guitar. And so there's two ways you can get an electric guitar to be louder. 
You can either strum the strings harder, um, and then thus it'll be louder, or you can turn up the amplifier. And if you turn up the amplifier, it's not just a single string that will be louder. All the strings that you strum will be louder um, if you turn up the amplifier um, on an electric guitar. So what's the analogy to human pain? Well, the brain and the spinal cord, which we call the central nervous system, are analogous to the amplifier setting on an electric guitar. Whether you're going to feel something that's going on in your knee is partly what's going on in your knee, but it's partly what is your amplifier setting in you as a person. If you happen to be born with a high amplifier setting such that you're, um, you are more pain sensitive, you feel pain um, with the amount of pressure or the amount of heat or cold that someone else wouldn't necessarily experience as pain, and that the fundamental problem in you is that your amplifier is turned up, then you'll feel more pain anywhere in your body because these strings on the guitar are, are analogous to the nerves that you have going to your muscles and your joints and your bones and things like that. If the amplifier is set too high, strumming any of these strings will lead the guitar to be louder than it would be if the amplifier was set at a normal level or set at a low level. And in fact, this really helps explain a lot of this variance between what we see on an x-ray and whether the person's experiencing pain or not. So I, I'm superimposing the knee on the guitar because that's the, the analogy that I'm using here is that the nerves that are going to the muscles and the bones and the joints in the knee um, are, are bringing information from the knee to the spinal cord and the brain. But whether you feel what's going on in your knee as pain or not is just as much due to what your amplifier is set at as what's going on in your knee. And that helps explain why a lot of people that have a lot of stuff going on in their knee, 40% of people that have a knee x-ray like this, don't hurt because these people have a low amplifier setting. These people are inherently pain insensitive. And thus, even though they have a really gnarly looking knee x-ray, and there really is something wrong with their knee, they don't feel any pain. But the people at the other end of the continuum are people that have conditions like fibromyalgia, irritable bowel, vulvodynia, um, temporomandibular joint disorder, all of these conditions now that are thought to be much more so a fundamental problem with the volume control in the brain. And even though you're, at the time that you get those diagnoses like irritable bowel or vulvodynia or interstitial cystitis, you have pain in the abdomen or the bladder or whatever, that's not where the fundamental problem is in those conditions. The fundamental problem when people have those conditions is really now thought to be much more so a volume control setting. And in fact, the National Institutes of Health in the United States a couple of years ago basically came up with this new label called chronic overlapping pain conditions. And what they said is conditions like fibromyalgia, um, irritable bowel, interstitial cystitis, endometriosis, um, they, they have um, eight conditions that fall under this label of chronic overlapping pain conditions, that what we've learned is that those are all really the same fundamental problem in the brain, but the people get labeled with the, um, the label that, that implies that the problem is in the area of the body where the person's experiencing pain. So they get labeled with irritable bowel syndrome. They get labeled with interstitial cystitis because it's in the bladder. They get labeled with TMJ syndrome because the pain is in the jaw. But th that isn't where the problem is. 
that in those conditions, the reason the NIH came up with this new umbrella term for all of these conditions is the problem in all of those conditions is now really thought to be one fundamental problem in the volume control setting in the brain. And so it's very common for people over the course of their lifetime to be given two, three, four, or five of those labels because it, it's just the first area of the body that your pain showed up in is the first label that you'll get. If it, if it turned out that um, when you were 15 years old, the first chronic pain condition that you experienced um, was painful menstrual periods, then the label you would get would be primary dysmenorrhea as if the problem was in your uterus. But then t two or three years later, you had pain in a different area of your body. A couple years later, you had different er pain in a different area of your body. And, and what we now have come to see is that people with these chronic overlapping pain conditions have one fundamental problem, which is in the brain, that happens to be manifest in different areas of the body over the course of their lifetime. And it's really important to put that together because once you realize that this is one problem in the brain, rather than that the person has five different problems in different areas of their body that they have to go to different subspecialists that are in charge of that area of the body to control these symptoms, once the person realizes that there's a fun, one fundamental problem that needs to be dealt with, you can dealt with, deal with it better. Better. <laughs> <clears throat> well, that's interesting. Yeah, so it does seem to be partly in your brain. Like before he went into this uh, clip that we just played, he was showing pictures of x-rays, and it was a knee x-ray. And one of the x-rays, uh, you could see that there wasn't very much cartilage involved. It was like bone on bone. And then the uh, other x-ray was like a normal-looking knee that had su sufficient amount of cartilage and cushioning in the knee. And it didn't really matter what the knee looked like. Uh, if they had a good-looking knee in the x-ray, they could have a lot of chronic pain in that knee. Or if they had like the bone-on-bone -bone, uh, x-ray, they could be completely pain-free. Yeah, so he was saying, too, that x-rays and MRIs don't, aren't really a good detection of pain. Mm -hmm. uh, because as people age, I don't know how normal this is, but it's probably seen as normal, but really it's common. But as people age, you know, they experience degenerative uh, problems in their joints and in their bones, and not everybody has chronic pain as they get older. So the only way to explain, or one of the ways to explain people who do have chronic pain, especially if it's not alleviated by uh, mainstream or alternative treatment methods, like maybe uh, opioids or acupuncture or uh, yoga or things like that, uh, one of the ways to explain it is because it's in their brains and the pain signals kind of get grooved in and it just sends out continuous pain signals when really the initial incident that caused the injury maybe is not really in pain technically, if that makes sense. Yeah, this, um, <clears throat> this makes me wonder about whether something like neurofeedback would be help helpful in, in mm -hmm. this kind of dysregulation. It seems like there's a dysregulation in the, in the nervous system and as you just said, like the initial 
onslaught is is kind of dealt with but it's almost like the brain is unable to effectively either process that or turn down the like like he said um similar to turning down the thermostat almost um and it's on like constant pain alert um what's interesting there there was a study a uh, couple of months ago it came out and i think it's posted up on sot it's um it was talking about fibromyalgia. So in fibromyalgia, many of the, the treatments are either painkillers um, or things like massage and acupuncture. And it's, they're, 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 they're based on, on, reducing, um, on reducing the pain. But like he was talking about in the talk, um, with fibromyalgia, it's it's a kind of condition where the pain is not localized to any one point. It's like pain is everywhere all of the time. It's like when you've got a situation where the pain is everywhere, you can't be looking at okay, what is going on in that tissue? Like there's something there's something gone wrong from the control station, which is like the central nervous system. It's, it's like a brain-based dysregulation. And so these people are highly like oversensitive to these pain signals. Um, but, but it's interesting because this study actually showed that um, the, the brain of the fibromyalgic patient is actually like in a state of chronic inflammation. And it's like, does does this state of chronic inflammation in the brain, this underlying immune response, inflammatory process going on all of the time is in the brain, is this what is 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 um, de dysregulating the the whole of the rest of the system? Sounds like it is. <laughs> yeah. Well, one well, thing I was that's kind of. In no, go ahead, Erica. Oh, I was just going to say, I was kind of surprised uh, with his talk, and I'll put it up in the chat if anyone's interested, uh, was that, so he talks about the volume control setting in the brain and that the um, basically old drugs like opioids have been around for a long time and the, the anti, I can never remember the acronym, NACIDs, NSAIDs. You know, before there was even aspirin, there was the tree. The what was it? The salicylic acid. Yeah, the, the willow bark tree. So, but that these um, these only marginally work, and they really don't work for people with this chronic fibromyalgia pain. So that's that was my added. Didn't mean to cut you off, Doug. Sorry. No, that's okay. That was good because I was going to change the subject. So sort of staying on the subject of pain, of course, but. Just getting back to the kind of all, all in your head kind of idea. One thing that kind of is very intriguing, and I don't think that people really have a full understanding of it, is the placebo effect. And you know, this is the idea that um, if you give somebody something that they think is a medication that's going to help their pain, they can actually get helped by it, even if it's not in fact a medication. It's just a sugar mm -hmm. pill or a rice powder pill or something like that. Um, and that kind of really shows that there is obviously some kind of mental component going on here. Um, like there was a documentary uh, done uh, by the BBC recently um, and it's called, um, 
Oh, I lost the title. I think it's just called the placebo effect. Oh, it's called the placebo experiment. Can my brain cure my body? And in the documentary, they actually um, took a whole group of people, um, like 100, 150, something like that. And they told them they were all low back uh, pain sufferers, chronic low back pain. And they said that we have an experimental new um, low back pain drug or a natural supplement, actually, they were saying. And um, we're going to give some of you guys the real, um, the real thing, and we're going to give some of you guys the, uh, the placebo. But what they actually did, there was no drug. They just did the placebo for everybody. And they kind of charted the pro uh, pro progress to see how they were doing. And I think in the end, 45% of them had significant um, improvement in their condition. Um, and this is kind of a well-documented phenomenon, like to the point where whenever they're doing a real drug trial, they actually do a placebo uh, group to make sure that the results that they get are more statistically significant um, than the placebo group. So, you know, if they don't get results from the experimental group that at least match the placebo, then obviously their drug is no better than a placebo. But And, you know, it, it kind of has that dismissive kind of... Um, thing about it where you know it, it, it's oh it's just a placebo and people who were taken even went into it in the documentary where people think that there's something wrong with them if they got the placebo effect like they're stupid or they've been duped or something mm -hmm. like that but it's actually a much stronger phenomenon than that there's actually a lot more going on there that the expectation of getting um a drug is enough in some conditions to actually um cause an improvement and I mean, it, it kind of the whole idea that the, the you know, the, is the pain all in your head? I mean, there's definitely something to that. And it doesn't mean that people are imagining things or that they're not they're faking it. They're not really sick or something like that. No, it's not that at all. There actually is just this kind of this real phenomenon of uh, of the placebo effect. Well, there was uh, one guy in that same video that you're talking about. He was wheelchair bound due to his uh, low back pain. I think he had hip pain too. And he was taking morphine when the study first started. I don't know for how many years he was taking it, but it was for a long time. And um, maybe a week or so into the experiment, he stopped taking the morphine and was just taking the placebo pills, not knowing that it was placebo. And he filmed himself like getting up out of his wheelchair and like walking yeah. a couple steps. I mean, it wasn't like he was running around or anything, but he reported such an improvement with just the placebo. Mm -hmm. It just makes you wonder like what mechanism is it really in the brain that tells you that you're okay and you're not in pain anymore? Well, in the beginning yeah. of the video too, what I found interesting was that they created the whole environment that people went into. Mm -hmm. So it was like a doctor's office. They also tracked uh, the difference between how much time the doctor spent with the patient. So five minutes as opposed to 10 minutes. And then when or, they gave them the, 30 minutes. Yeah. yeah. And then when they gave them the, the pills, it had all the lettering and the, how much to take during the day. It looked totally legit. And mm -hmm. so warnings. the warnings. And so they said that that played into it a lot too, that how many milligrams, you know, the professionalism behind the whole setup convinced people that this was the real deal, even though they knew they could be part of the placebo. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah and even well, another apparently... thing about um, the time that they spent with the doctor, 
like some of them uh, spent only 10 minutes with the doctor before they started taking the placebo pills. And when their 10 minutes was up, the doctor abruptly cut them off and said, okay, here's the pills and this is how you take them. And other people got like 30 minutes where the doctor was like listening to all their story and very sympathetic and everything. And even that in itself caused an improvement in the person's perception of their pain. Mm -hmm. They even um, do some placebo trials where if it's an injection, they'll still give people the injection because they've found that in placebo studies, the more uncomfortable the treatment is, the better mm -hmm. the placebo effect. So if you get the pain from getting a shot, it's more likely to work than if you're just given like a tablet or something like that. Um, and they even do that in animal studies as well when they're doing <clears throat> a placebo-controlled rat experiment. And <laughs> the rats in the control in the control placebo-controlled group are uh, will still get the injection um, because they still need to feel that pain and they still, you know, so there, there's there's as little difference between the two groups as possible. But apparently, when there's that discomfort, it's actually more effective. Yeah, I think I read that study where they did it on the rats too because. Normally, you think, oh, you know, animals won't respond to a placebo. But they, I think they gave rats like a couple of shots of morphine just so they'll get used to the effect that the morphine had and yes. make them feel better. And I, and then they gave them a placebo shot. And I don't know how they can tell <laughs> that a rat feels less pain, but he does some kind of rat behavior where he looks like he's like calm and relaxed. And it, <laughs> it still worked. <laughs> Yeah, there was even um, in the the docu the BBC documentary the the host actually did a thing where he made a concoction like a drinkable concoction that tasted bad, and he put caffeine in it. So he would get and he was testing himself by doing some kind of uh, movement exercise kind of thing where he had to hit numbers that lit up at certain times um, randomly. So he had and he had to hit them, and it was testing how fast he could hit them, and. So he started doing it with after taking the caffeine. And then after a few times of taking the caffeine, he just started drinking the drink without the caffeine in it. And his performance was still better than when he wasn't. So it's like his body got used to this bad tasting drink and assumed that it was still getting the caffeine or acted mm -hmm. as if it was still getting the caffeine. And that sounds a little bit weird, but the thing is they've actually done studies where they've told people that it's a placebo that they're getting and they still derive benefit from it. Mm -hmm. Which yeah, and even studies, is crazy. Yeah, well, they did uh, sham surgeries, like for mm -hmm. people's backs or their knees. They still like put them through the anesthesia and then poked in their knee and dug around. Or even <laughs> cut them open. Yeah, cut them open a little bit and then just sewed them back up. And they didn't actually get any surgery at all. I mean, besides the cutting. And they still felt better. And then when they told them that they got a sham surgery, they still felt better. <laughs> yeah. Well, the crazy <laughs> thing about that one is it was on a, a specifically a, a knee surgery for a, a particular type of, I think it was an osteoarthritis or something like that. And what they actually found is that the benefit was no different in the placebo group versus the actual procedural group. Mm -hmm. So their conclusion from that is like, oh, it doesn't matter. It's all bullshit. Like the, the, the surgery doesn't actually do anything. It's the exact same as the placebo. But the thing is, they still did something and they were still feeling relief. 
So I don't think it's necessary to completely scrap the whole thing. Like maybe just tell people they're getting surgery, cut them open and sew them back <laughs> up. I mean, they're still getting benefit, right? Like mm-hmm. I don't think you should scrap the entire thing and just say, no, we have to, you know, start over at the drawing board. It's like, you know, they're still getting relief. That's good. Well, I think it goes back to that whole thing that you said, Doug, about it being in the brain. There's something about the brain that it maybe it's your belief system or... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know if it's belief system, though, because that whole thing about even being told that it's a placebo, it still works. I yeah. mean, unless you believe that they're lying to you, that it's not a placebo, <laughs> or I, there's something else, or maybe it's just on a subconscious level because you're, you know going through the motions of doing something to help yourself is mm-hmm. enough to kind of release those chemicals in your brain that will kind of solve the problem on its own. It's like, it's, yeah, it's just, you need that trigger or something like that. You need a, you need a trigger there, which is taking a pill. Even if you know the pill doesn't do anything, it's enough. Yeah. Maybe once you get that trigger and it stops the cycle, that's pretty much all you need, no matter if it was real or not. But I don't, I still struggle with this because it's like, how can you fool your brain? Like your brain knows what is real and what isn't, even if you're living in denial. I don't understand yeah. it. <laughs> it's uh, maybe, it obviously is something happening. It's on magic. Conscious level. <laughs> yeah. It's like the pills aren't placebos, they're magic. Hmm. Maybe it has to do with intention. Perhaps. But still. I don't know. Well, another interesting study, actually, they did a study with hypnosis where they actually hypnotized people um, and had them. So what they did is they caused people pain and they have a way of doing it so it doesn't cause any kind of permanent pain or anything like that, but can still actually cause pain. It has to do with like heating something against their skin to a certain temperature where it won't cause any damage, but it's enough to kind of set off your pain sensors. And so they did that to people and they measured with an MRI what was going on in their brain. Uh, And then what they did is they hypnotized people and they didn't actually cause them any pain, but they suggested that they were causing them pain. So they, you know, just suggested them, oh, you're feeling pain in your shin right now or something like that. It's like it's very hot. And they measured the MRI thing and the same area of the brain was lighting up. Um, but then they also did another experiment. Well, part of the same experiment where they just told people to imagine that they were feeling that pain and the people who were imagining it did not have the same brain areas light up as the people who were actually getting the pain or the people who were being hypnotized to believe they get the pain. Mm -hmm. So again, it just kind of shows how much the brain can be involved here that if your brain is convinced that there's actually pain being caused, that you will feel it. And similarly, if uh, you go under hypnosis to alleviate pain, um, it will kind of have the same effect as if you had had some kind of therapy. So, I mean, it kind of goes along the lines of the, the, the placebo in that you're kind of dealing with the subconscious mind and that just the suggestion, either through placebo or through hypnosis, can be enough to actually have an actual effect. Along similar lines, um Meditation has also been shown to be like really effective. Um, there was one study that showed that around an hour of meditation basically dramatically reduced um, pain and also the areas of the brain 
which were associated with with pain didn't they didn't light up as much um so apparently according to this study they found 40% reduction in pain intensity and 57% reduction in pain unpleasantness um and so the parts of the brain that were activated during pain signals um were 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 not we're not lighting up as much as someone who was ordinary, ordinarily feeling pain. Now, from like, uh, you could look at this from like a physiological perspective and say, okay, so we know that meditation activates things like the parasympathetic nervous system and perhaps the endocannabinoid system and all of that kind of stuff. But then you have to also wonder whether there is also some kind of perhaps non-physical or non-biochemical aspect to this as well like similar to what Doug was just saying how it's maybe something relating to the way that the subconscious mind or whatever uh, dictates the function of the physical body or however that works I don't think anyone really understands how it works but um, I guess as part of meditation it's not only um, focusing on breathing and things but there's also I guess you could say like a non-physical aspect to that as well, um, calming the mind and sort of processing things, and perhaps that processing also filters through into the into the physical body, into the way that the brain is wired and things, and maybe this is having some kind of effect sort of downstream. Like I don't yeah. just want to try and explain it biochemically because it doesn't. It seems like there's much more to it than that, but it's so hard to pinpoint. Because how can you measure something like that other than looking yeah. at things like the placebo studies and stuff? Mm-hmm. Well, the interesting thing, too, is that, you know, if people aren't familiar with meditation, they might think that, you know, that what the people were doing is actually sitting there and just kind of distracting themselves from it, like just being kind of in their thoughts and lost and not paying attention to the pain. But actually meditation um, in like for the purpose of dealing with pain, they actually tell you to to focus on it at least periodically, you know, people will do like a body scan or something like that. And when they get to the part of the body that that has the pain, they're not told to ignore it or, you know, to try and shut it out or anything like that. You actually, what they say is lean into the pain. And so, yeah, it's not, it's not distraction. I think that's an important, uh, important distinction to make that, that people aren't just, you know, thinking about something else or trying to distract themselves from the pain. They're actually, they're fully aware of it. Well, another study that they did that wasn't even about physical pain, it was more about emotional pain from a breakup. Um, They gave some people who had just uh, broken up out of a relationship, they gave them some kind of nasal spray and said that this would make them feel better. Well, first, when they first came in, they showed them a picture of their ex-boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or whatever and told them the rate how they felt about that person. Then they gave them the placebo and a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them said they felt better, not just about the person that they broke up with, but just they didn't feel as depressed after taking the placebo. So it works not just on a physical level, but also on an emotional level. But yeah, one other aspect of this, which is is interesting, is that <laughs> I've always wondered about is that emotional pain and physical pain so physical pain is caused by some kind of you know inflammation or something is like physically gone wrong in the body yeah Mm -hmm. um whereas emotional pain 
is 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 completely um non-physical you might say yeah mm-hmm. um but the same parts of the brain are active during emotional pain and physical pain so uh, wasn't that is, debunked though oh was it <laughs> Well, I've read Sorry. both, actually, I so I don't know I don't if anybody to rain actually on your parade knows. There, <laughs> no, no, tell me more. <laughs> no, I just read recently that um, that that was that was not actually the case. Mm-hmm. That they did more uh. studies on it, and they found that it was it it was not actually the the same part of the brain. That the the body actually does differentiate between um, mental pain and. Uh, Emotional pain, or sorry, emotional pain and physical pain. Sorry, right? Okay. So that's point, that, where... that points out the window. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, when people are in chronic pain, they don't just have physical pain; they also have like mood disruption, sleep disruption. Uh, they have trouble concentrating. So it's not just the physical system that is affected, like. Brain components are affected as well. So I don't know if anybody really knows 100% what the heck is going on in these cases. No, I think that's true. And another weird thing, like say you are doing meth or something, and you you get into an overdose situation, so you get some naltrexone, which is um, blocks the opioid system and prevents you from dying from opioid overdose. They actually tried low-dose naltrexone and it actually worked for pain. And the reason that they think it works is that, like say you get an injury or something and your body produces its own natural painkillers or opioids and those systems get so flooded and they give you like a an actual opioid like morphine or oxycontin or something and people say that it doesn't work and it's probably because their own natural system flooded all of the uh what they call them the dope dope the receptors the receptors in their brain so nothing more that they give them actually works but when they block it with this no low dose naltrexone it kind of frees up some of the receptors and for some reason, that works in decreasing pain. That's weird. That is weird. Yeah, that's very strange. So something that blocks opioids, and it does block like the natural ones as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really strange. Mm. Well, another interesting thing that kind of ties in the whole is it all in your head thing is that one thing that they found to be very effective for chronic pain is cognitive behavioral therapy. And this is basically just a way, uh, a type of therapy that concentrates on people's behaviors, on their thought patterns, that sort of thing, um, in order to help them. And I mean, it's, it's usually used for emotional kind of conditions and stuff, but um, apparently it's also quite successful for chronic pain. And it's kind of changing people's thought patterns around the pain um, mm-hmm. And giving them exercises to to see kind of how they feel about the pain, and you know giving them things to kind of change their attitude towards the pain, and that actually ends up having an effect. So, mm-hmm. again, I mean, maybe part of the pain, um, certainly I wouldn't go out and say all of it, but maybe part of the pain or the, the part of what people are suffering from, is a more emotional kind of attachment to the pain, 
you know, maybe like a poor me kind of thing. Why do mm -hmm. I have to suffer like this? Um, you know, it's unjust, something like that. Um, I'm speculating here, of course, because, you know, I haven't studied any of this kind of thing, but um, I just found it very interesting that this changing of thought patterns around pain can actually have a beneficial effect. Well, I think that's why meditation works. Yeah. What is like Elliot was saying, you know, you don't just sit there and zone out, but kind of the practice is those sensations arise and you sense them and then you let them go. So you're not holding on to that sensation right. and ruminating on it, so to mm -hmm. speak. Well, that takes us back to what we were talking about earlier about people who are more resilient and certain aspects of their lives are able, better able to cope with pain mm -hmm. and they find a way to work around it and they just don't sit there and, you know, shake their fists at God. So maybe that's mm -hmm. part of the reason why the cognitive behavioral therapy works is because it works on certain personality aspects that cause people to hold on to their suffering and not let it go. Yeah. Yeah. I bet it, I bet that there is a connection there with the with the meditation and, and stuff like that. I think that that's probably true. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think the recommendation of alternative modalities, whether it's chiropractic or massage or yoga or meditation or Tai Chi or all these things, it, it, it doesn't keep people in that pain state. It gives them almost like a pathway or a potential to get out of it. And mm -hmm. so maybe just that shift in their thinking pattern, well, I'm going to go to this Tai Chi class twice a week. And, you know, they say that exercise is good for pain. And so maybe it's the opportunity to not be suffering all the time that's driving people forward. Well, some people cling to their suffering. Yes. And yeah. uh, if you actually were to, and I'm sure pe doctors have told people, you know, it's all in your head. Maybe they didn't have a fancy way of explaining all the brain mechanisms behind it to explain why it is partially in their head. But if you tell that to some people, some people get so offended. Like, how dare you say yeah. that my pain is not real or that I'm imagining it? Or they think that the doctor is accusing them of being a, a, a drug seeker or something like that. And I don't know what can be done for those people because people are just yeah. going to be how they are, I guess, sometimes, but well, for those who... it kind of requires who... like, a, like a, a cognitive shift in some way, right? Yeah. Like, and that's, like, you, you can't really, like, induce that in people. Mm -hmm. um, they have to want to change, want to get better. Yeah, and the um, doctor, me, now, <laughs> doctor, <laughs> the one we played the clip from, what was Claw. it? Claw. <laughs> Not a cow. Claw. <laughs> like if you read some of the comments under that video, there's some people who suffer from chronic pain and they're just like, screw this guy. I don't care what he says. My pain is no, real. Kidding. The drugs work for me, man. Huh. They just want to take our drugs away. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do we want to play our second clip? Yeah. This is Dr. Claw. Again, he's talking about the different types of pain and how you can differentiate between an actual physical 
cause of your pain and one that is more brain-based. And so this is the way that we now think of pain, that there are three underlying mechanisms that can cause pain. And until about 20 or so years ago, we only knew about these two mechanisms. And what I'm really going to talk more about is central pain or brain pain that's coming from the central nervous system more so than the nerves or from the knee. And the characteristics of that pain are different than the characteristics of pain that's coming from the knee or coming from the nerves. And the treatments that you have to use are quite different as well because they're treatments that work in the brain, not treatments that are working in the knee or working on the nerves. So let me go through each of these, these uh, different types of pain. So nociceptive pain is the scientific term we use when pain is coming from your knee. There's something wrong in the, in the peripheral part of your body, in a, in a joint, in a bone, in a ligament, in a muscle, and there, that uh, pain is occurring because there's something wrong in that area of the body. There's either damage or inflammation of that area of the body. If you have that kind of pain, the pain, you can actually localize the pain very well the location of the pain will be consistent from one day to the next or from one week to the next. And there will also be a consistent effect of activity on that pain. Most types of pain in your knee get worse when you use your knee and get better when you don't use your knee. So if you have no susceptive pain in your knee, you will be able to localize it fairly well. You'll be able to show with one finger exactly where in your knee it's coming from. And you'll be able to say, my knee always hurts after I walk more than two blocks or after I um, climb three flights of stairs. Because the pain is occurring because you have overused that damaged or inflamed area of the body. And that area of the body is sending a signal to your brain, stop doing that, you could be hurting yourself. <clears throat> now nerve pain has been known forever. Nerve pain is when there's either um, a pinched nerve or a damaged nerve. And I, didn't, I keep forgetting to put this on my um, electric guitar slide, but the, the, the nerves would be comparable to the cord that is going from the electric guitar um, to the amplifier. Is that if you cut the cord, um, or you pinch the cord, or you damage the cord, that that is a theoretical cause of pain. And that is essentially nerve pain, is that there's something wrong with the nerves throughout our body because we have long-standing diabetes, because we developed the herpes zoster, um, because we have a pinched disc in our back or a, a, a pinched nerve in our wrist and we develop either sciatica or carpal tunnel syndrome. But this is nerve pain. And nerve pain has its own unique set of characteristics. Number one, nerve pain will usually follow the, the distribution or the pattern of sensory nerves. So most types of nerve pain will be primarily in your feet and your hands because that's where nerves end and that's where the pain starts is at the end of the nerves, not at the beginning of the nerves. So most types of nerve pain will be in what's called a stocking glove distribution, i.e. will be felt worse in the hands and the feet. And then as it progresses, maybe people will have nerve pain that moves into other areas of the body. But most types of nerve pain is either in a stocking glove distribution or it is in the distribution of the nerve that is being pinched. So if you have a pinching of your median nerve as it goes through your wrist, that's called carpal tunnel syndrome. And you will only have pain and tingling in the fingers that that nerve 
goes to. You won't have t pain and tingling in all five fingers in your hand. You'll have pain and tingling in this side of your hand because that's the side of your hand that the median nerve goes to. If you have sciatica, um, because you have a nerve pinched as it's coming out of the bottom part of your spine, you'll have radiating pain down the back of your leg all the way down into your foot because that's where that nerve goes. But, but again, nerve pain can be distinguished from nociceptive pain both by the location and by the characteristics of nerve pain, people will often feel it's, it's burning, it's tingling, um, that the, they feel electrical shocks and things like that. Those are the characteristics of nerve pain. So, but this third type of pain has really only been recognized in the last couple decades or so, and this would be the type of pain that our research group has been most prominent in teaching the rest of the world about. Um, and this is central pain or brain pain, where the fundamental problem is an increased volume control setting. Now, this pain is different in subtle ways than either nociceptive pain or nerve pain. So let's go back to the knee again. If you have pain in your knee that is occurring because your brain volume control is set too high, not because there's something wrong with your knee, but your pain in your knee is occurring because your brain volume control is set too high, I will tell you a couple characteristics of this pain. Number one, is you won't be able to localize it nearly as well as if it was coming from your knee. If I asked you to point with one finger where in your knee you hurt, you probably would draw a big circle, but you wouldn't just point with one little finger and say that it's in this exact location. The location wouldn't be nearly as consistent from hour to hour, day to day, week to week, if your knee pain is coming from your brain as if it's coming from your knee. If your knee pain is coming from your brain, one day it's on this side of your knee, a week later it's on this side of your knee, and a month later it's in your other knee. Because the problem isn't in your knee, it's, a, it's in your, the brain, and, and, it, and so it's not going to be in the, exactly the same location from hour to hour, day to day, week to week, as if you have damage in one area of your body where the pain's always going to be coming from precisely that same location. The other thing is that if you have pain that is your feeling in your knee that is coming from your brain, you're not just going to have pain in your brain. You're going to have pain in multiple other areas of your body because going back to my guitar analogy, if your amplifier is set too high, any of the strings, if strummed, would be louder. So the, the best way to determine that someone has brain pain is we give them a body map and we ask them to mark with X's all the areas of the body you have pain. And this includes headaches, this includes sore throats, this includes any kind of pain or discomfort you have. And the more X's you have on your body, the more regions of your body that you have pain in intermittently, the more likely your pain is coming from your brain because this is the, the fundamental characteristic of brain pain is it's going to be much more widespread. It's going to involve many more areas of the body than just a single area of the body where you're experiencing pain. Yeah. Hmm. So the more areas that you have pain, different parts of your body, the more likely it is is that it's from the brain, you know, unless you got hit by a car or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the fact that it's transient too, that it moves around. Interesting. Do we have any suggestions on possible solutions for brain pain? Meditation, cognitive behavioral therapy, placebos. Neurofeedback. 
neurofeedback. And then the Back elephant in the hours. room, diet. <laughs> yes. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think diet's a big one because mm -hmm. the fact of the matter is if you're eating a, a diet that is causing you inflammation, then mm -hmm. it's going to cause you pain. And mm -hmm. I, what I found since kind of discovering the ketogenic diet um, and carnivore diet and all those is that, I mean, those are low inflammation diets. And what I've discovered is that if I ever go off on a cheat of some kind, have a treat or something like that, I will feel inflamed from it. Mm -hmm. And it tends to be like the weak point of my body that tends to respond. Like suddenly I'll have, uh, well, back pain a lot of times. I think every time, maybe not every time, but most times that I've ever like injured my lower back was after doing some kind of treat or something like that. Something mm -hmm. that was not um, wholly on the diet. Um, and I think it was just because it was increasing the general inflammation in my body and that was kind of the weak point, you know? Yeah. So I, th I think diet's a big, a big one. Yeah. Likewise, I've never had a headache when I was strict keto or carnivore, unless I cheated. And I've not had menstrual cramps, hmm. keto or carnivore. Uh, one time I had sciatica pain was when I was eating carbs. <laughs> So there's a lot to be said for diet. I mean, even if you do hurt yourself, you may notice that you, rec you recover quicker if your diet is cleaned up of you know, sugars and excessive carbohydrate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There, are, there is something called the inflammasome, and this is basically like a piece of machinery which was recently found, and it's kind of still new and kind of unknown in, in, in the science. But uh, it's called the inflammasome, and it's basically activated by certain things, triggers something which you could describe as a, a cell danger response basically when the cell goes into survival mode and this is really what um, is involved in many instances of chronic pain, chronic inflammation and uh, chronic health conditions. And there are certain things which activate the inflammasome and there are certain things which switch it off. And so there's, there's some interesting research, I don't want to divert too much away from the topic but I think it's pertinent, is that um, there were cases where you could essentially inject, I believe they injected mice or they, um, they basically made the mice get uh, some kind of infection. And they found that the mice who, um, they, sorry, they had two groups of mice, okay? One gr uh, both groups had the infection, but one was genetically uh, engineered to be unable to switch off this inflammasome, like this chronic inflammation. And they found that it was the ones um, who were unable to shut down the immune, the immune response because of this machinery stuff. Um, they were the ones who died from the infection. 
Okay, uh, I didn't explain that very well, but basically what I'm trying to say is that many of the things that we consider healthy in healthy diets and all of this kinds of stuff, you know, especially in, in certain vegetables, oxalate is one of them, um, these things trigger the inflammasome. They trigger this thing inside the cell. So does, you know, the chemicals and the toxins, but generally the problematic aspects of the diet can trigger uh, processes in the cell which essentially trigger like systemic chronic inflammation. When you've got chronic inflammation in the brain, then uh, the certain areas of the brain are going to become more sensitized um, to pain centers um, and whatnot. Um, and yeah, sorry, that, that was a bit uh, discombobulated but what I'm trying to say is that yeah I agree with both Doug and Tiffany that um, a poor diet is definitely gonna contribute toward that but there's one other thing that I'd like to say it's about the pain meds so um, the the opioid medications um, they've actually been shown um, not to be very effective they might be very they might be effective in the short term but long term, when you're taking these medications, they have very poor outcomes. Not only do they have uh, detrimental effects, side effects, um, they can have detrimental effects on the liver, but they also have been shown to sensitize certain areas of the body to pain. So they can actually increase it in the long term. And there's something very interesting as well is that basically these many of these medications can actually um, block up or basically um, uh, how to explain it yeah you could say it is they can block um, a certain pathway uh, in the liver called glucuronidation okay and so what's interesting is that to be able to activate certain endogenous opioids you need to funnel them through the liver to go through this process called glucuronidation okay and it's and it's it's like a paradox because the medication that they give for pain actually reduces this process of glucuronidation and when you have reduced glucuronidation this means you're unable to effectively activate the endogenous opioids that you do produce so long term it can actually have the effect whereby taking an opioid medication can actually have the opposite of the effect because it stops the body from being able to activate its own opiate system mm -hmm. um, and that there are cases um, Susan Owens has spoken about this there's there's cases where people have taken certain nutrients to be able to increase the the process this process in the liver and actually at high doses um, they can achieve amazing pain loss just by taking um, something which improves glucuronidation. One of those things is called calcium deglucurate. Oh. So this is just like uh, calcium, which is a mineral, bound to a glucuronic acid. Um, these are both things that you find you know, in the human body. Um, it's like a nutritional supplement, and people take it for things like gut health and estrogen detoxification and stuff. But this actually really increases the rate of glucuronidation in the liver. And it's interesting because um, this is actually showing really good benefits for people who are in chronic pain and they get given some kind of pain medication and it makes the problem worse. Whereas actually what, it, what they can do is that they can speed up this process and then they can actually provide themselves with some temp temporary pain relief, you know. I know that's kind of off topic, but I just thought I'd add that because it's interesting. No, I think it's what? definitely on topic.
<laughs> do you know offhand, Elliot, what kind of doses of calcium deglucurate? I think pretty high doses. Um, I think maybe three grams. Okay. Three to yeah. five grams, I think. Right. But I mean, it's it's extraordinarily safe stuff. It's literally, as I said, it's calcium with glucuronic acid. It's just a nutritional supplement. Interesting. Well, have we beat this topic to death? <laughs> do you feel the pain? <laughs> I do want to say again, though, I think that uh, the alternative approaches, like even massage, mm -hmm. you know, I think there's a, a emotional component to pain as well. And I do think that we store trauma and tension and in our tissues and uh, that these kinds of things can be alleviated and, and you don't want to shy away from it. And sometimes for those of us who like massages that are a little more intense, it's not the most enjoyable experience. Mm -hmm. But uh, I know for me personally, I've experienced intense jaw pain and had massage and realized, you know, the emotional component of it as well, but had relief and it hasn't come back. And so um, I think those are good modalities to look at too. It's not necessarily running away from it, but kind of acknowledging it and then working through it. Make sure you have a good massage therapist. Mm -hmm. Well, another thing, going back to one of those placebo experiments where the patient spent 30 minutes with the doctor versus 10 minutes with the doctor. I think part of the benefit from having a longer session was with the doctor was uh, more of a feeling of connection and knowing that somebody cared. And, and there's been numerous articles and studies about how bad um, having a lack of connection is and being lonely and how that's bad for you. So I think maintaining connections with people and knowing that there are people around you that care about you, care about how you're feeling, can actually alleviate a lot of pain that people go through. And being people, able to share that. Yeah. To, I think people to almost, suffer more if they don't have that connection. Yeah. Yeah. Well, also, we do. Oh. Having pets helps too. Yes. <laughs> Good transition. Thanks. <laughs> so we do have a pet health segment about pain. Yeah. Kitties in pain. Hello, and welcome to the pet health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. This week, I'm going to share with you a recording that is going to help you recognize whether your cat is in pain. Unfortunately, it is trickier than with dogs. So listen up and hopefully it will be helpful. Have a great weekend. Hi everyone, it's Milda here again from Relax My Cat channel. And today I want to tell you all about how you can tell whether your cat is in pain. It can be extremely challenging sometimes to know whether your cat is in pain or not. That is because they have learned to hide it so well. It stems from their origins and their basic survival skills because in the wild an injured animal is an animal that is vulnerable to attack. However, there are certain signs that certainly say that a cat is in pain. So let's look at them. 
One thing that you might notice about a cat being in pain is that you don't notice them anymore. Cats in pain tend to hide and move around less, so their mobility might decrease as well. If you see that your cat is struggling to go up and down the stairs if previously they were very active, then perhaps it is a sign that they are in pain. You might see a change in your cat's grooming habits as they might clean themselves a lot less now because it might be painful for them to contort themselves in all those difficult yoga positions. A cat that stopped using the litter box could be a cat that is in pain. For cats to climb that extra four, four and a half inches could be extremely painful, so they might just use, go to the bathroom outside the litter box. As well as that, pain can lead to slowed motility of intestines and that in itself can lead to constipation. Also look for signs such as loss of appetite because a cat in pain can drink and eat a lot less and um, excessive sleeping or sleeping only in one position. Um, changes in localization or general changes of personality, say for example if your cat is a lot more irritable or cranky, especially if you touch um, certain areas where it might be painful for her. Um, remember, when you go to the vet, um, they will often rely on your observations because only you know what is normal for your cat, uh, whereas the vet does not know your cat as well as you do. So just be observant. Don't ever give cats human painkillers. Cats metabolize drugs in a different way to all other species. So unless the painkillers are given at the proper intervals and the, at the proper dose, they can be toxic to cats. And this is especially true um, with ibuprofen, which is a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory painkiller, which can be deadly to cats. There were actually some instances where people have killed their cats, obviously accidentally by self-prescribing their uh, medication. So it is very important that you don't do that um, unless you are instructed by your vet to give your cat medication. Well, some pain is related to pain or injury that can be easily treated and resolved. In older cats, pain um, tends to relate to conditions such as arthritis, which causes chronic pain. There was a study at Texas A&M University that looked at cats that were brought into vets for many different reasons but pain. And it, it showed that 90% of those cats over the age of 10 had x-ray evidence of painful arthritis. So they were in pain, but their owners didn't know anything about it. However, when you know what to look for, it is much easier to see it. Signs of chronic pain are almost exclusively behavioral in nature, so it is important to monitor your cat's behavior very closely. Um, pain can have many different causes, such as operation, wound inflammation, infection, um, many different things, but the general rule of thumb is, think about it, if it would be painful for you, it is painful for your cat, and no animal should suffer in silence. So the first step, is to identify the pain and then to contact your veterinarian. Thank you, Zoya, for that. I know the same can be said for dogs too. They seem to have a very high 
threshold for pain. Mm-hmm. And when they actually start whimpering, it's pretty serious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we hope that we shed a little bit of light on the pain in your brain <laughs> and some strategies. And uh, we thank all of our chatters and listeners for joining us today. And be sure to tune in to the shows this weekend. They are Truth Perspective on Saturday and Newsreel on Sunday. We will be back next week with a new topic. And thank you, co-hosts, for a lively discussion. Goodbye, everybody. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Goodbye.